Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prail. Governor Gavin Newsom and state legislators reached an agreement on Monday that would provide $4.6 billion to support school reopenings, plus another $2 billion for districts that reopen by April 1st. The issue of school reopenings has plagued the state for nearly a year, with school boards, teachers' unions, and parents at odds over when and how to do it safely. We'll get a breakdown of the proposed deal. Then we'll turn the tables on forum host Mina Kim to learn more about the person behind the mic and what she's most excited for in this next chapter of forum. That's all next after this news. Hello and welcome to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. As you know, Forum is changing. Mina Kim has been named the host of the statewide 10 to 11 a.m. hour, and we'll be bringing you lots of different voices in this hour as we search for a new host at 9 a.m. And now on to today's topic, California's new school reopening plan that could send up to $6.6 billion to schools is headed for a vote tomorrow after Governor Newsom and the state legislature struck a deal. But even with the proposed deal, this remains a very sticky situation. So let's talk about it. Joining me now is Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer with KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. Welcome back to Forum, Guy. Great to be here. And Julia McAvoy, Senior Editor for Education and Equity here at KQED. Hello, Julia. Good morning. So, Guy, let's start with you. Give us the need-to-know breakdown of this deal. Right. So this plan is really based on incentives, on encouraging school districts to bring kids uh, back into school. Uh, $6.6 billion, as you mentioned. A lot of that is you know, mitigating the learning loss that has happened over the past year as Kids have been, uh, you know, having school on Zoom, but $2 billion is really for schools that decide right away we are moving towards reopening. And it'll be for things like ventilation, helping them get kind of the school building uh, up to code to bring kids back. So the plan starts with K-2, to then moving into higher elementary school grades as their counties move into the red coronavirus tier, which a lot of the Bay Area is now moving into. Um, most middle and high schools are left out of this plan. Um, But the way I would kind of think about it is the state said, look, we're not going to mandate reopening. We're not going to, you know, force uh, students back into the classrooms. So we might as well not be the hurdle to that happening. So compared to a lot of the other proposals that we've heard about in the state legislature, this is a lot more hands off. And is it likely you think to pass when they vote tomorrow? I think so. You know, we we saw in committee hearings uh, this week so far really unanimous support for this legislation um, as it moved through the budget process. I think, you know, this is a, a deal really worked out between legislative leadership, Democrats, and then, of course, Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom. There are a lot of sticking points over the hurdles uh, that, you know, schools, the prerequisites that schools might have to hit around vaccinating teachers, perhaps around testing uh, kids. I think this really got the sign off of all parties involved, the, both the legislative leadership, 
uh, teachers unions, school districts. Um, and so I think you are looking at this, you know, passing tomorrow, then being quickly signed into law. Yeah, and that's and Newsom did say yesterday that he'd be ready to sign it as early as Friday. So, uh, and Juliet, how are the big Bay Area school districts responding to the proposed reopening plan? Yeah, Ariana, I think the big question here is like, is this really going to help schools reopen in person more quickly, which a lot of parents have been advocating for very publicly. And for me anyway, what's the definition of being reopened in person exactly here? Um, But as you look across the Bay Area, what we're seeing already are more and more districts already saying they're targeting mid-March for bringing younger kids back in person and those at-risk learners. And we see this in Oakland, although they don't have a bargaining agreement yet, and Berkeley, for example. Now, these districts are in Alameda County, right, which is still in the purple tier. And the deal says, you know, if they reopen to the youngest kids by end of March, they can get some of this cash. So this may, in fact, help push them to do this. And one of the OUSD board members has said she hopes to not leave cash on the table here in a cash-strapped district. Um, But, you know, if you look at the governor's deal and you look at the counties that are in the red tier, they need to reopen to in-person, as Guy said, to some higher grades as well to capture some of this money. And we just saw Santa Clara, San Francisco, and Napa move into that red tier, joining San Mateo and Marin, um, which brings us to San Francisco, right, where the district has already been on the hot seat to move faster. You know, the city attorney has filed a lawsuit there, and they have no dates at all yet to reopen. Um, The superintendent, Vincent Matthews, has said this deal isn't going to help them achieve that goal. He says there's still too much to do for them to meet the deadline of April 1st, they still have no labor agreement, their building sites haven't been inspected or signed off on yet by the County Department of Health. They say they wish it would help, but he's saying he doesn't think it's likely. Um, And I do think it's interesting, Ariana, to take a look at San Jose, um, because what's happening there is the San Jose Unified District, which has already got a labor agreement in hand, and it's set to reopen April 24th to all grades. Um, when the county moves into the orange tier. Um, And what they're saying there is that the governor's deal is not going to change their plans. Hmm. They have, uh, yeah, uh, the woman there, Jennifer Maddox, who's a spokesperson, said she said, look, we've got a model working relationship with our our labor unions. We already have an agreement, and we're not going to go back on that, even for a few million dollars in incentive money. So in the long run, when working with their teachers, they don't see this as, as being worth it. They're sticking with their plan. Well, I know this issue is impacting a lot of our listeners, so we're going to welcome you into the conversation. What are your thoughts on the plan or questions about what would happen under this plan? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Yeah, so the teacher union issue is, um, you know, is one of the key constituency that's involved in, in this. And uh, Julia, teachers have said they want vaccines to go back into school. President Biden says he aims to have all teachers receive at, le- at least one shot by the end of this month. Does the deal include mandatory vaccination of teachers or any sort of plan around that? It does not. Um, and I think that's partly because some places have already reopened without teachers being vaccinated, and if it was suddenly mandated that you have to be vaccinated to reopen, that could throw those arrangements into uh, a spin, which they don't; those districts don't need. 
Um, so yeah, the deal has the state basically aligning with the CDC, which also says schools can be reopened in person safely without teachers being vaccinated. But because the unions, which are very powerful here, have insisted on this, the state has committed to making vaccines happen. You know, we saw uh, the governor set aside 10% of vaccine supply for teachers. And, um, you know, as guys reported, the state and teachers unions are very, very happy about this. They see this as supporting their argument that that's what it's going to take to reopen um, all schools safely. Yeah. Guy, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, I think the vaccination issue speaks to the way in which the state has really backed off on a lot of the mandates that had originally proposed in the legislature around school reopening. Vaccines is the top example. Look, that was a huge issue for teachers unions, like Julia said. The resolution this plan comes to is setting them aside, but not mandating that teachers get vaccinated. And I think it's a similar thing for collective bargaining. The state is saying, look, we acknowledge that a lot of these big districts are going to have to collectively bargain, are going to have to reach agreements with their local unions. But at the state level, we're not going to mandate that. So for a lot of smaller districts that may not be part of their process, we're not going to make them go hire a bunch of lawyers and and make that a hurdle to reopening. And I think testing is, is another piece of this, too, because you know, for a lot of smaller districts, kind of ramping up a testing infrastructure, especially to, you know, regularly test asymptomatic uh, students and staff was difficult. So the way this plan uh, gets at that is basically saying once you your county moves out of the purple tier, which again, a lot of California is headed in that direction. Once you're out of the purple tier, there is no need to to do this kind of regularly scheduled cadence testing. Um, And so At the local level, there are still going to be hurdles. This plan in no way guarantees uh, that kids are going to be back in the classroom. I think what a lot of districts were looking for, though, was a framework, a kind of guidance from the state to say, here's how you could do it. Here are the resources to do it. Um, But again, the criticism that's come on this plan is it stops short of saying kids have to go back in class. Right. And and Guy, do you think that the plan that legislators came up, do you think this is the best that legislators could come up with at this stage? this plan? You know, I think it, it took a few months. Um, I think this is this is definitely reflective of the fact that school districts are, are this, you know, this is a huge state with school dist- districts that have really varied needs. I mean, I was saying the other day, you have LA Unified with 600,000 students, you may have other districts in the state where the principal is driving the school bus. And so how as a state legislature, are you supposed to put forward a framework of guidelines that apply to all those kind of districts? It's difficult. Um, I will say it's absolutely fair criticism of why are we having this discussion now on March 3rd, this same discussion about, you know, negotiating, coming up with guidelines, bring students back into class could have happened last summer before the start of the regular school year when we saw uh, caseloads and, and, um, you know, coronavirus caseloads lower than they are now in much of the state. Um, And to that, I would say the political pressure really didn't evolve on this issue until later in the year, the beginning of this year. They really forced the legislature's hand and especially the governor's hand to actually do something on this issue. And Julia, what does the plan say about classroom time? That seems to be one of the key sticking points for parents. Definitely. I mean, I think what some parents are really upset about here so far in response to this deal is that it is in, is not mandata- mandating f- to reopen full-time in-person learning five days a week. And that's what a lot of frustrated parents are, are calling for. Um, I do want to point out here that, you know, while we are seeing some groups of parents getting a lot of media coverage, you know, for their demands to reopen, um, districts have to serve the kids of all of its families, including those who do not want to send their kids back right now, because they still feel it's not safe. Um, 
you know, for example, a, a, a Pew Research Center survey out last week found that, you know, all adults surveyed, 59% said, wait until all teachers who want to get vaccinated can be before you reopen schools. And when it came to Black adults surveyed, it was 80%. So, you know, we know that several districts in the Bay Area are also finding widely differing feelings about this from parents, as Guy has reported for us so well. And um, that brings us to hybrid models of instruction, which is what this deal says can happen. And that takes a lot of very <laughs> varying forms, depending on which district you're in and, and the complications of designing really good models for those kids staying home and those who want to come back without breaking the backs of teachers in the process or stressing working families who would have to be transporting their children in the middle of the workday to and from school. So, you know, the law says the districts can do hybrid. Um, on the other hand, we also know that the they're expecting local education agencies to offer in-person instruction, quote unquote, to the greatest extent possible. And that is what San Francisco City Attorney Dennis Herrera is claiming San Francisco Unified is not doing. And that's why he's suing them. We're talking about a new plan to jumpstart school reopenings with Guy Maserati, reporter and producer with KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, and Julia McAvoy, senior editor of Education and Equity at KQED. And you, our listeners, join the conversation. Let us know your thoughts on the plan or questions you have. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll get to your calls when we come out of the break. I'm Ariana Prail. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. We're talking about a new plan to jumpstart school reopenings with Guy Maserati of California's of KQD's California Politics and Government Desk and Julia McAvoy, Senior Editor of Education and Equity at KQED. Now let's go to a caller, Shailene in Berkeley. You're on. Means that we will continue in this direction. Hello, Shailene. Hello. Hi. Yes. What's your What's your comment or question? Hi, my name is Celine. Um, I'm a parent in Berkeley. I'm calling because, you know, I heard the reference that this bill was agreed on by all parties and specifically district leadership and teachers. But I think what strikes me is that parents and students are not part of that discussion. <laughs> you know, they are a key part of what makes schools work, and they are a huge part of who schools impact and these decisions impact. And it feels like parents and kids are really not part of the discussion of how to make this work. We're trying to speak, but it doesn't often feel like people are listening. And then my second point was simply that this bill does not mandate full-time in-person instruction for children who are failing in virtual schools or for the children of essential workers for whom the hybrid models really increase infectious risk because they have to have their kids in full-time care. 
Well, thank you for sharing those comments. Guy, do you want to speak to maybe, you know, who was at the table or informing legislators uh, to kind of clarify yeah, who was at the table, who wasn't? Well, I think Shalene raises a great point in the sense that lawmakers are really struggling with that exact question. What do parents want? And I think both the public polling and the district survey uh, data is all over the place. You can find public polling that says, you know, parents have a deep understanding of how distance learning is failing their children, while at the same time, the same poll might say there, there are concerns, there are safety concerns, people are hesitant to send their kids back. Same at the district level. There are surveys, you know, that in some districts say, you know, there's majorities for sending children back. There's uh, large districts I reported on Fremont Unified where 65% said they want distance learning for the rest of the year. And then within that, there are large breakdowns between different demographic groups on how they want their kids' education to be handled for the rest of the year. And again, those are surveys. They're not scientific. They're really about people taking the time to fill them out. So what voices are getting captured in those? And I think it all speaks to whether you're on a school board, whether you're in the state legislature, it's hard to cut through that and find out, okay, what exactly do my constituents want on this issue? While, of course, acknowledging you're weighing that against the powerful influence that groups like teachers unions do have at the state legislature. And Ariana, it's Julie, I just want to jump Mm -hmm. in to say that that's also happening at the micro level, district by district. I've definitely heard from parents from from Mill Valley to Berkeley who have watched the slow negotiating process happen and feel like they're not part of it. And they're like, gosh, we've been educating our children now from home for months. Aren't we also educators? And shouldn't we be part of this discussion as to what would work for us when we come back? And when I ask that, uh, of districts, you know, you can't change the the bargaining sort of methodologies that happen thus far, the traditional ones. But districts will consistently say we have involved parents in our working groups that we started back when schools closed, and over the summer we had groups, uh, working groups, try to figure out how we were going to do this in the in the fall. And there were parents and students as well as teachers who were part of those working groups. So obviously, some parents still feel they are not uh, being heard or in this in this debate, and I think that's speaks to perhaps a district leadership in those places where um, parents don't feel heard and listened to. Thank you, Shaleen, for those comments. And let's go next to Deborah in Richmond. Deborah, you're on. Yeah, hi. I'd like to open the discussion to talk about any kind of special needs students that are being failed by distance learning. I have two daughters in fourth grade and in kindergarten in Richmond Public School that um, have a high-functioning autism. And Zoom has been a sensory nightmare for them. It is loud. There's a ton of stimuli. They have a hard time at baseline in person reading people's body language and intention. And through Zoom, that's nearly impossible. They have IEPs that have social-emotional growth and learning that it's just it's not possible through zoom um i have they're having emotional issues my kindergartner now is refusing to do the work and just flipping the lid of her tablet down and my fourth grader is has been diagnosed during this time with clinical depression and has had suicide ideation as well Mm. i really think we are failing special needs kids at this point. And we as a society need to do better at protecting the most vulnerable. And that includes especially special needs children that are being left out of this discussion and being failed altogether. Julia. 
Yeah, I okay. uh, couldn't agree more. It's ex- heartbreaking. It's extremely excruciating for a lot of families who have been, you know, in charge of trying to make sure their kids are learning through this th- this difficult, difficult time period. And, you know, I think that's going to come to a head here at one point or another. It's going to have to be a moment of accountability for how um, these children are being served or not served. I know that in San Francisco, for example, they have, you know, about 700 children who have not been assessed for their special needs uh, in over a year. Uh, they've just finally come to an MOU agreement to open up a facility to start to assess those kids, which everybody is really cheering about there. And I will say from the teacher's perspective um, uh, who work with um, children who have um, special education needs or education needs that need um, special attention, they are saying, look, we need to be in close contact with our students in person when they do come back. And our kids are not going to be good at keeping masks on. We have to wipe up after them sometimes as we help them do things in the course of the day. And we're going to be super close to those kids. We really need to be vaccinated. So I it's a crazy answer, but you know, the sooner uh, special education teachers can get vaccinated and feel safe to go back in the classroom, I have a feeling that's when it's going to be happening more quickly to get more special education students back inside the classroom and help parents out who are really uh, fearful of how their children are suffering under this situation right now. Well, thank you, Deborah, for for sharing that perspective for the conversation. Uh, go to a couple comments, Guy. I'll I'll go to you on these. Barbara writes: Our school district in Moraga is open in person two days a week for less than three hours a day. This is not reopening schools. This is accommodating teachers and unions that just don't want to go back teaching full time till the end of the pandemic. Newsom failed us. And this listener tweets, how did we get to a point where teacher unions can veto public health recommendations? How do we move past this? So again, some of just the political tensions that are there. What are your responses to right. those? Right. Well, and I would say, you know, to the first comment, that is a, a big, uh, you know, Thing that's missing in this plan is is there really is no details about how districts have to bring kids back as far as hours and timing of instruction right this money is available to districts as long as they reopen their doors um and they don't have to set aside a minimum number of hours or you know bring kids back for a certain amount of time that was you know questions that were posed to the governor when he unveiled this plan of you know are you worried about districts in a sense perhaps gaming this bringing back kids for the least amount of time uh, you know, feasible, but still being able to recoup some of this money. And I think that definitely is a concern. We're going to have to see as, you know, this plan rolls out in the next month, if that's something that actually happens in districts, doing the bare minimum, but still getting this kind of state funding. Yeah, and we're talking about a new plan to jumpstart school reopenings with Guy Maserati, reporter and producer with KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, and Julia McAvoy, senior editor of Education and Equity at KQED. And you, our listeners, give us a call with your thoughts, questions about the plan. Give us You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And Julie, I'm going to go to you with this comment. Uh, Mari writes, there are two school districts in Contra Costa, West Contra Costa and the rest of the county. Reporting on school reopening consistently omits any mention of Contra Costa County. Can we please have an update on our schools as well? Yeah, um, I mean, again, what happens is district by district, uh, things are happening at different pacings. So in Mount Diablo Unified, for example, the superintendent there, Adam Clark, he thinks that you know, this reopening target for them will be around mid-March to early April. They're still working on a a labor agreement to finalize 
uh, there, that situation. And he, he's glad that this deal is providing, you know, more consistent guidance on some of the issues that have been the sticking points between school districts and their, their labor partners. He specifically mentioned being glad that the test, testing of students was not going to be on the table here anymore. Um, and I think over in, in Richmond, you know, Matt Duffy, uh, who is superintendent there in the Richmond uh, District of West Contra Costa County there, he's saying, you know, he just hopes this kind of, they're, they're meeting on Friday to decide whether or not they're going to come back and how they're going to come back. They're still negotiating as well. And he's looking uh He's looking to make that happen if possible. He would like to make that happen, but he's got to figure it out with his labor uh, partners as well. And uh, he, he's hoping what this happens is create some, some momentum among various districts uh, who can make it happen more quickly and that that might spur other districts to jump on board as well in the county. All right, let's go to another caller. Chris in Berkeley, you're on. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I appreciate it very much. I, uh, of course, have been listening to the conversation quite closely. Um, I am a special education teacher um, in the East Bay. I'm also a parent uh, of of children in that same district. Um, And I just heard your conversation with a a mom from Richmond, I think it was, who had some daughters, um, quite young, you know, fourth grade or maybe even younger, who have been assessed and, and identified as having, you know, more significant support needs, quite significant from what she described it's 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 very challenging um, for us as teachers. I think already in in a in a time where teachers certainly as compared to my youth, where teachers were held in the highest regards in my household at any rate, um, where teachers already have not been as as far as I can tell getting the you know the respect that they deserve for being the professionals that they are. You know we we understand how hard this is for everybody. It really is quite hurtful to hear teachers being vilified and demonized to the point where you've got these folks like these guerrilla moms in Berkeley stalking the union president there and 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 his little girl when he's just trying to get her dropped off at daycare, which I think to compare that to to public school and and the issues there it's it's apples and oranges. but you know we're all struggling too, and I can say for myself i've been I've been really busting my behind trying to do everything I can. I mean, I lose sleep over kids making progress that I served 15 years ago in my special mm-hmm. education classrooms. And so, you know, as much as we we completely understand and appreciate the struggles that parents are having, having right now, we're having them too. We're struggling too. My own family's falling apart while I'm trying to hold up the families that I support, the children and the, and the families in my care. And so it's it's really hard and hurtful to hear these very broad brush blanket statements being made that are throwing us all into the bus. You know, I don't know what the circumstances are for that mom in her district. Trust me, my heart absolutely breaks for her when I hear her and, and, and her discussions of her struggles. But man, it, it's really hard to try to get my family going every day and then get up and try to serve these families every day. And, and you see the comments and the vitriol and just the, the, the what's being thrown at us about how we teachers are just, you know, sitting on our laurels, collecting our huge paychecks. I don't know what world these folks are living in. I definitely didn't get into teaching for the big, the big bucks. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm here to serve these families and their children. We're doing the best we can. I mean, these circumstances are completely unprecedented. Right. I mean, well, perhaps if we'd had leadership all the way from the top down, I'm talking on the federal level down, we, none of us would be in the situation we're in now. But things were politicized, things were left to the states, and it's a mess. Yeah. And we all appreciate that. Well, th- thank you for sharing your perspective, Chris, and, and also for you, the work you do and the care that you obviously bring to your job and to your students. Um, let's go to, and I'll just let uh, your statement stand. Let's go next to Melody in Fremont. Melody, you're on. Hi, I'm a nurse practitioner, and I have kids 
at home and they're doing school. And what I can't understand is we live in California. I grew up in the state. Whenever possible as kids, we had class outdoors. There's lots of room on campuses. If you can go out to dinner under a heat lamp and be safe, tell me why you can't send kids out to a yard six feet apart or more. If it's cold, have heat lamps. If they can afford to do it, why can't our schools? All right, thanks, Melody Guy. Thoughts? Reaction. Yeah, no, that's a great that's a great question. Actually, I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, I, I don't know the the current uh, plan in the legislature doesn't really dictate where uh, you know education can happen, other than to stick within six feet. But I don't even know if that would apply uh, to Melody's point. If you're if you're doing classes outside, I don't know if Julie, if you have a better idea of some of the hurdles, the out, outdoor hurdles uh, schools face. Yeah, I've asked a lot of teachers about this and districts, and we know there's been some momentum to make this happen right from the beginning, and especially in in Berkeley, and Sarah Hosseini for us has done some reporting on this, and it kind of came to a halt, and and people are very frustrated about it, and it has something to do with, uh, I think it's the logistics of how to move classrooms outside, and I don't know the details of that, but it, it does seem like a very logical move. Um, I did talk to teachers at schools uh, in southern South San Francisco who said that on their campus, they don't even have enough room outside to to move kids outside. Uh, So, you know, I think there are details involved in that, like everything else in this that have to be worked out granularly, but it is a very, very good question. And I'd like to find out more about it myself on my list. Well, Heather tweets, San Mateo County may be red, but the most vulnerable communities like East Palo Alto are still at purple. Opening on the backs of these vulnerable communities of color and their teachers is a selfish failure. And that kind of ties in with the question I was going to ask you, Julia, too, in terms of, um, you know, some teacher union leaders are concerned the state plan would mostly benefit schools in wealthier neighborhoods. Um, So what are we looking at with that equity question? Yeah, it's a really important one. Uh, As you look across the state's map, tracking which districts have opened and which ones haven't, you pretty consistently see that those who have, which have been able to reopen, are smaller, have uh, more money, and that's made it easier for them to make this happen. Um, Let's take Larkspur Court to Madeira. You know, they're already open and they're going to, the the district superintendent there, Brett Geithman, said he's going to be able to capture some of this money because he's already met uh, the requirements that this deal is is asking for. And that's a district that's already doing pretty well financially. So that seems to me anyway, to simply be doubling down on districts that already have um, resources. Um, on the other hand, there's a large chunk of change in this that is going to help students, uh, rather districts that are under-resourced, get the resources they need to to hopefully reopen. And in fact, a large chunk of this focuses on interventions and summer learning and, you know, trying to uh, assess and make up time for kids who have fallen behind the most. Um, there's a lot of recognition that this is a huge problem and that we've really got to got to focus on it. But yeah, I, I think this, this questioner has a really valid point, which is, isn't this just going to exacerbate the, this wealth gap here? Well, Anurag writes, remote learning does not work for all. Yes, we may need special consideration for special needs kids, but most parents don't want to have their kids back at school. More than 90% of middle school parents choose to continue remote learning. Parents of kids without special learning are being selfish in trying to get schools open. Uh, Let's go to caller. Let's try and squeeze in one more caller. Lance in San Ramon, you're on. Uh, Yes, hi. Um, I just want to, and it's been said by others, but this has just been an utter lack 
of leadership, failed leadership from Newsom to the state level, counties, districts, teachers unions. You know, it's been a year and we're now just kind of cobbling together a plan. I've lost my job. There's people who are suffering. You've talked about the inequality of, you know, different, whether it's socioeconomic, people of color, learning disabilities. And this utter lack of failed leaders, sorry, this lack of leadership has failed our children. And I just don't understand why other states have figured it out or are working through it. Why we cannot do that in this this state. And it's just so frustrating to the point that now that I've lost my job, we're considering leaving California because of this. I'm sorry to hear about your your circumstance, Lance, and thanks for for sharing your your perspective. And I also just want to add a note that producers letting me know that there's, and Guy, you've reported on this with regards to Anurag's comment that I wrote in terms of the polling, in terms of where middle school parents stand, that you've reported that polling is kind of all over the place. So we can, we need to take some of that with a grain of salt. We just have about 30 seconds, but yeah, if you have any final thoughts on that. Right. Yeah. It really does, you know, depend on districts, but to Lance's point, look, the political pressure has, has totally built. You cannot underestimate the impact that parent groups have had in this conversation. Like I said, there was no discussion about reopening over the summer, and it really wasn't until parents started organizing and kind of providing a counterweight uh, to some, you know, teachers unions, both at the state and local level, that this really got going. Well, thank you to Guy Maserati with KQED's California Politics and Government Desk and Julia McAvoy, Senior Editor of Education and Equity at KQED. Always super informative. Thanks for coming on Forum. Great to be with you. Thanks so much. We'll have more Forum up next with a familiar voice to the Forum family. More after the break. I'm Ariana Prail. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.